the Song of Solomon chapter 5. Songs of Solomon <clears throat> chapter 5. We're going to go through verses 6 through 16 this evening. And again, the title is A Change of Attitude. A Change of Attitude. This new section tells how the couple's marriage, that is Solomon, King Solomon and the Shulamite woman, his bride, how they grew and matured even though they had problems. Time had passed, some time had passed since the wedding. And the new wife felt as though some coldness had developed in their relationship. She'd become, she had become cool to her husband's advances in our last study, uh, Sunday before last. And by the time she had changed her mind about her attitude uh, and responded to him, he left. Uh, he had come, he had knocked on the door, and she said, Oh, man, I just got into bed, uh, I, I, my robe is on, and my feet are clean, I don't want to get them dirty. And by the time she did get up, he, you know, he left. And so uh, she's thinking twice about that now. She's changed her attitude about the way she did not respond to him. Her self-centeredness, even though it wasn't for long, it caused this, this conflict, this separation between the two. But she quickly jumped into action to fix the problem. And that's the thing that we should always learn, first of all, is that, man, when we mess up, we need to understand and, and take care of it as quick as we can. And she did that by going out to look for her husband, King Solomon. You know, it kind of just happens that as time passes and a couple becomes familiar with each other, um, a marriage, you know, it may start to lose the sparkle that it, that it once had. Uh, we're not maybe as sensitive and courteous and, and those things kind of fall by the wayside. Looks and touches uh, no longer give the same emotional response that they once did. Conflicts and the pressures of life can be another reason causing you to lose your tenderness and sensitivity to each other. The world, this world, as we know, is not the best environment for lovers because outside stress often works its way into the marriage relationship. But spouses can learn to be a refuge for each other, a sanctuary, a retreat for each other. If intimacy and passion decline, Remember that they can be renewed. And take time to remember those first thrills, the excitement of the sexual intimacy, your spouse's strengths, and the commitment that you made to one another. And when you focus on those positives, reconciliation and renewal can happen. Now, we left off last time we were together with Solomon and his wife both feeling like they have, they've been wronged. And when conflict arises and both parties realize something's gone wrong in the relationship, somebody has to have a change of heart. Somebody has to drop their pride and, and, and make the first move to, to make things right if there's going to be a healing. So that change of heart will then lead a person to go after the other person to make things right. It's not, about, you know, I'm the, I'm the one who was wronged and they got to come first. And, and, and that's usually the way it works. And what happens? Nobody comes at all. Because we're waiting for the other person because we have been wronged. Hey, Jesus said, you know what? Just do it. <laughs> Just do it whether it was you that was wrong or not. So again, the, heart, the change of heart will lead that person to go after the other person to make things right and to resolve the problem. So let's begin now with verse 6, chapter 5. 
And we read, and again, this is the, the bride, the Shulamite woman speaking, Solomon's wife. She says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. So again, this is where we pick up where we left off. She, when she finally decided to go to the door, Solomon had left, she says here, my beloved, and has turned away and go, has gone. She says, my heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. So beginning with verse 6 here, the Shulamite, Solomon's bride, his wife, wants to seek forgiveness. She can't sleep as long as there's a conflict that needs to be resolved. She can't sleep. And conflict should be dealt with as soon as possible. And that should be the desire of your heart. Paul said in Ephesians 4.26, be angry. All right, it's not a sin to get angry for the right reasons. But he says, don't sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. He's saying, don't stay angry all day. Don't allow it to, to consume you. He says, because you give place to the devil. Verses, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, if you are about to offer your gift to God at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or your wife or husband has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, go at once and make peace with your brother, wife or husband, and then come back and offer your gift to God. You see, we can't worship God if there's ill will in our heart. You see, ill will and the love of God cannot dwell in the same place. If you ignore conflict and you don't seek forgiveness, and it's only going to make your relationship more difficult. And it's going to have other harmful consequences as well. Look what happens in verse 7. She goes out to look for him. And in verse 7, it says, The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. And So the city, we saw this before, the city was guarded at night by watchmen. Here she was alone outside at night. She's looking for her husband. She's looking for King Solomon. Now, in Old Testament times, she would have been considered a criminal or a prostitute being out there by herself late at night. And here it says she's, been tre she's treated like one. And the picture here symbolizes the pain that she felt being separated from her husband. Why should you seek forgiveness? Because no one wins when you're at war with each other. The fighting goes on. Husbands and wives treating each other like enemies. But there's a joy like no other to be experienced by husband and wife who learn to love each other with an all-absorbing agape love, self-sacrificing love, an unconditional love. Okay, romance, belonging, sweet companionship, physical fulfillment. All those things are part of a wonderful, lasting intimacy. But be warned. This love cannot grow in the same heart, as I just said, where there's wrong attitudes and ill feelings. Ill feelings like anger and bitterness and resentment, pride, disappointment, loss of hope, aggression, whether it's open or hidden aggression. Facing and dealing with negative attitudes in your own life won't only stop a war that nobody wins, but it can open up the door to all kinds of blessings that may bring a love life that you no longer thought might be possible in your marriage. And so we, we need to look at our own attitude. All right? We need to look at our own attitude. We need to look at ourselves and not our partner's attitude. Many times, you know, I, 
when a husband and wife pray and they're having difficulties in their marriage, the husband will pray. Dear Lord, show my wife where she's wrong. Show her where she needs to change. And you think the wife is receiving that prayer? She's fuming inside because we're pointing the finger at her. Now, you don't find that in the scriptures. David said in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. The word test means to be be put on trial. Lord, put me on trial and examine me so that I can see my heart and know my anxious thoughts. He goes on, point out anything in me, notice, not anybody else, in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Six times the personal pronoun, me or my. It's all about me. As you make the needed changes, it will surely have its effect on your spouse. You need to look at your negative attitudes as barriers. When we have that negative attitude, it's like, it's like building a wall. And, and the longer we go, the higher that wall gets until you, you, you basically, you know, wall your, your partner out of, out of your, your, your emotions, out of your life. That, and, and you block the open door to a true love relationship. Barriers separate and they get in the way of progress. But they're not necessarily impassable. So if negative attitudes have taken root in your heart, you have to pluck them out. So that the way will be open and it will be clear for love to come running through. So these attitudes have all kinds of different names. But whatever you call them, the bottom line will always be the same. An unforgiving spirit that can rob you of everything that makes life good. If you allow that bitterness, that unforgiving spirit to go on. But you always hear people say, well, you don't understand. You know, my feelings are justified. I'm right in the way I feel because you have no idea how badly I've been treated. But here's the thing. The problem isn't your feelings. It's your behavior. You have to make a choice. You have to make a good, sensible decision. Because if you don't make the right choice, you will automatically follow your emotions. And man, we we are moved so much by our emotions. Emotions that have neither logic nor the support of the word of God. And that's the critical thing to think about. Feelings cloud your judgment. You can feel one way today and and a whole different way tomorrow. And there's nothing that's been within that 24-hour period to make you feel one moment up and one moment down. Don't let passions, your emotions, make decisions for you. Feelings have no rational foundations. A person's, a person's actions create your feelings. You allow them to cause your emotions to go all over the place. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 165, Those who love your instructions or your word have great peace and they do not stumble. In other words, your peace and your joy in the Lord is not dependent on other people's attitudes. But our modern education system today, it emphasizes feelings and self-esteem over critical thinking and reasoning. But sound judgment is more important than how you feel. Just think of all the wrong things you would do if you were led by your emotions. 
When you're out on the freeway and they got cuts you off or you're in the market line or whatever line and somebody jumps in front of you, you're sitting there, well, I know, I should speak for myself. I want to punch that guy in the nose. If I allowed my feelings to get the best of me, I'd be in a world of hurt. If you want a marriage that's full of love, you can't afford that luxury, if you want to call it, of resentment or self-pity or anger. Unforgiveness in any way will kill love and, and marital growth and maturity. And if you choose to hold on to your feelings, which a lot of people do, they'll cripple your marriage, your relationship. And at the same time, they'll take its toll on you physically and emotionally. Every time married couple, a, a, a married couple wants a healthy, happy, loving marriage, every normal couple does. Every normal couple wants a healthy, happy, loving marriage. But many times, they don't know how to deal with the past. Here's another big issue. Or their negative attitudes. Or how to cope with their resentments. Or how to recognize their own anger that might be the cause of why they feel so hopeless. Many don't know how to forgive And they think it's so complicated, even impossible to forgive. But it's not. And remember, and I said it this morning in our study, God never asks his children to anything that he doesn't give them the instructions to do and the strength to do it. Now, here's two principles to help you here. First, you don't have to be controlled by your feelings. Second, you are not the helpless prisoner of your past. Now, these are the main objections or excuses people give when they're told they need to forgive. Maybe I, sh- maybe I need to forgive, but, but, but I can never f- uh, feel any forgiveness toward my husband or wife after what they did. Again, the word feel. Or I'd like to forgive my husband and w- or, or wife, but I can't change the way I feel. I can't change the past. No, you can't, but you can change today and what goes on tomorrow. What these people are saying or admitting to is, I'm imprisoned by my feelings. They see themselves imprisoned by the past. And yet, if you're a Christian, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you are free. You're free. Did you know, and you, if you're reading your scriptures and, and you're paying attention and you're getting absorbed in the scriptures... The Bible does not give any special attention to a person's feelings. The Bible doesn't deal with long, drawn-out treatment of the person's past like psychology does. That puts the blame on your parents or something you didn't get when you were little or something you experienced when you were small and now it's been carried into your adult life and that's why you have these problems. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible emphasizes the present, right here, right now. So we need to start right now by realizing that we are in control of our behavior. And this is what counts because it's a proven fact that feelings can change as your behaviors change. Feelings change as behavior changes. So we have to understand that God isn't asking you to change your feelings, and he never does that. All through Scripture, he tells us the way he wants us to behave and the way he wants us to think. Why? He's created us. 
And because he's created us, he knows that what we, when we think right and we behave right, right feelings will appear in us as a result. Mark 14, 17, 72, we have a great example. Well, remember when Peter was told, when Jesus told me, you know, my, uh, when you hear the rooster crow three times, you're going to deny me? Well, in Mark 14, 72, it says, and when Peter thought about it, he wept. You see? When he thought about it, he wept. Your feelings are directly connected with your thoughts. And you need to realize that God isn't asking you to work up a feeling of forgiveness towards your spouse. He's asking you to choose to forgive him or her no matter how you feel. That's obedience to God. But we say, well, God, you know, you need to change my feelings, man. You need to, you need to give me the feeling. No, you need to be obedient. You be obedient and then God rewards you with the feelings. That's the way God works. Trust me, he says. I know what's best. Obey me, and you'll get the feelings. Now, is God making selfish demands on us? No way. He asks us to forgive because he knows it will do us good. God loves you, and he loves me like a father, with a fatherly heart, and he wants the best for us. That's, that's the deepest concern in his heart, what's best for me. And that includes the spiritual and the emotional wholeness and the physical health that's a byproduct of a forgiving spirit. Is God making an unreasonable request? No. Never. Never forget that God forgave us first. And in a way, we can neither take that lightly nor overlook it. When Jesus was rejected, when he was falsely accused, when he was mocked, abused, tortured, And then nailed to the cross, he experienced the most agonizing death that hatred could invent. Remember his words? Come on, Father, we're going to go take care of business. We're going to get these guys for what they did. That would be our reaction. No, he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. God asks no more than that. And in reality, he asks us less. A lot less of us. If any man ever had the right to be bitter, it was Jesus. But he wasn't. He forgave instead, and he set the pattern for us. He set the pattern of forgiveness for all of his followers from that time on. And remember that every command of God carries with it a promise. Because he commands it, as Colossians 3.13 says, as Christ forgave you, so you almost And so you must also do. You see, the ability to forgive comes with the choice to do so. God's command is his enablement as a parent. You don't ask your children to do something they can't do, that they're not capable of doing. And then if you see them struggle, what do you do? You help them. The father does the same thing with his children. Forgiveness involves three steps. Number one, using your free will to choose to forgive. Second, deliberately behaving in the way the Lord Jesus has shown in the Bible to be right. And third, trusting him to do his part by renewing your mind and giving you new transformed attitudes. So the first one is choosing to forgive. 
And to help us choose to forgive, we read in Hebrews 12, 13, and 15. Again, it gives us an urgent warning. The writer says, mark out a straight path for your feet so that, you ch- f- so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. He said, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you falls or fails to receive the grace of God. Here it is. Watch, that, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Watch out for that root of bitterness that grows in us. God warns here that the person who doesn't forgive will cripple their life. And not only that, 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 that person will be troubled by the root of bitterness, crowding out the good things in life, but it will also crowd out many other things that will be injured by that root of bitterness too. The word bitterness in the Greek gives the idea of unpleasantness, piercing, sharp, cutting. It clearly gives us the idea of something that tortures. And that's exactly what you're doing to yourself and others when you refuse to forgive your spouse. It's torture. You will really suffer by your own choice until you decide to completely forgive any wrongs done to you. It's like drinking poison hoping the other person will die. Bitterness, anger, resentment. You suffer more than anybody else. It, it might be one, one big thing or a lot of little things over a long period of time that adds up to the big resentment. And it will definitely cost you something. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't keep a record of being wrong. And we're good going back 10 years. Ago. Well, you remember when you did this to me? Uh-uh. Hey, it costs God more than we'll ever know to forgive us. But he's never once brought that up to me. Never. But once you choose to forgive, you'll learn that you've taken one giant step to freedom and emotional health and spiritual growth. And as soon as you choose to forgive with your mind and your will and give that matter to God, you'll free yourself. And you'll free the one who offended you from the hole that that, that's, been, that's had you in the, from the past. And then whatever happened is history. No longer an emotional issue because you've allowed the Lord to heal you. Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. There's no bruise. There's no emotional wound in your marriage that the Lord cannot heal when you choose to forgive. And when you give it to him and, how you, and, and also how you behave in the future. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the story of Joseph. If anybody, if anybody, like, like Christ, but as a human, had the right to be bitter, man, it was young Joseph. His brothers hated him when he was young. Hated him so much that, that they wanted to kill him. And if it wasn't for his older brother Reuben, they would have killed him. Instead, they sold him to an Egyptian trafficker, slave traders. They took him off and he went to, to serve in Potiphar's house. And, and you know, I read what uh, uh, somebody once stated that if, if, that if this kid would have been taken to a psychologist and what had happened to him, they said he would be ruined for life. 
he would be ruined for life. Listen to what Joseph said when he named his firstborn son. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. His brothers hated him. They traded to slave traders. They took him to Egypt. He served in Potiphar's house. He was, he was accused of rape, falsely accused of rape. He spent years in jail. And he says, God has made me forget all my toil in my father's house. Everything that he went through. Why? God is more powerful than anybody's past, no matter how bad it is. Now, there's nothing wrong with our learning from the past. That's what we're supposed to do with the past, as long as it doesn't turn the past, Warren Wearsby says, into a museum, which we're good at. They go back and go, I remember when that happened, I remember when that happened, and that, and that, and that. We turn it into a museum. And we go and we, we march through it, and we look at all the things that happened to us in the past. Because Warren Worsby says, you, you turn the present into a museum and the future into a cemetery. The past will kill your, 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 your life today, your future today. And the question is, is the past encouraging you or embalming you? Warren Worsby said, if you concentrate on your past, you are to rob yourself of a glorious future. Howard Hendricks said, you learn from the past, but you don't live in it. Jim Cimbala said, God is more powerful than anybody's past, no matter how wretched. He can make us forget, not by erasing the memory, but by taking the sting and paralyzing effect out of it. So when Joseph said, I mean, when, when, yeah, when Joseph said that, you know, he's made me forget, it wasn't like it was erased from his mind. But God takes the sting out of it. He takes the sting out of that and that paralyzing effect out of it. And no hatred can hold you prisoner when you choose to be free. No negative attitude can control you when you choose to let it go in obedience to God. Because his love simply overpowers all resentments. The second help thing is, 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 is forgiving is changing your behavior. Now, last time together, we already looked at Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. And it, it named all the things that would cause conflict. Bitterness, wrath, clamor, anger. You know, he said, put that away. Be, be kind and, and to one another and forgiving to one another. God is, in Christ has forgiven you. And in Ephesians 4, God shows the process of first choosing to get rid of those negative things, those negative attitudes, and then take on a positive attitude. Behaving in positive ways. All summed up in the instruction that Paul gave at the end, be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. The real meaning of kind treatment is to treat your spouse exactly the way you want to be treated. Kindness will definitely be one of the marks, the signs of forgiveness. And this means you'll never use the past against them again. You'll never talk about it again to him or anybody else. You'll never think about it again. And if you do think, do think about it in passing, you immediately remember it has been forgiven just as God has forgiven you. And for many things, a whole lot worse. And when true forgiveness takes place, your behavior will change. It has to. To forgive is, is to say goodbye forever to the pain of the past and to be rid of its effects in the here and now, in the present. The third thing in helping forgiveness is renewing your mind. Now. 
is the time to forget about the past and to move forward. And you can do this as you let God renew your mind through the Word of God. As you read. Reading the Word of God. So, so replace the negatives with the good attitudes that will bless your marriage relationship. Paul said in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, he told us what to think about. He says in the New Living Translation, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. He said, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all that you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. You see, we're to think upon the things that are good, holy, virtuous, of good report, Paul said. Not on that stuff that that brings us down and, and takes us to the past and the woe is me. God has given his people the ability to leave the past behind. The Christian life is about today. It's about now. It's about the future, tomorrow. We cannot change the past, but we can do something about the now and the tomorrow. And God has made it that way. He's designed it so that the Christian can always start where they are right now to live in a new way. And that is God's way. And somebody said the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And it is. And what a comfort to know that I can't mess things up so badly that God can't fix them. And then make them work for my good. Like Paul said in Romans 8.28. All things... You know, work for good. It's amazing and it's wonderful to know that God can and will start over with a whole new game plan for my life right now if I turn my life over to Him. He always responds in love when we want to follow His counsel. Take Him at His word. The Bible says in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercy never ceases. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. And because this is true, we can say like Paul in Philippians 3.13, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. But what if my partner's holding a grudge against me? What if my partner's holding a negative attitude against me? That's a barrier to love. If they're holding that negative attitude towards you, then you take the initiative and you seek the forgiveness. Stop doing the things that cause the divisive feelings between you. And then show by the way you talk to your spouse and, and how you behave with your spouse that they you know you were wrong and that you want to make it right. And then if there's no response after you do these things, you keep doing them. Not saying, well, forget it. Why should I do this? They're not responding. I give up. No, you keep doing it. Just as God keeps loving you when we mess up. You keep showing your consistent, loving behavior that you're committed to. Committed to loving your partner for the rest of your life. And forgiveness can start even with one person working at it. So why not let it be you? Now, 
Even after everything that's been said, you still might have limitations attached to your forgiveness. I can forgive everything else, but I could never forgive my spouse for being unfaithful. I mean, that's like the unpardonable sin to the married person. Sin is sin. And every person is totally capable of committing sin. And all sin needs to be dealt with. It needs to be forgiven no matter what it is. And if you're bitterly disappointed in your spouse, that attitude is also a signal that you need to choose to forgive also. Remember, God's grace covers everything. 1 John 1, 7, But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. He cleanses us from all sin. He forgives us of all sin when we're walking in the light, walking in Christ. We are to forgive all sin that is done to us. And the love of God can cover every kind of problem. There's no situation that's so shocking or so difficult that God would just go, oh my goodness, I can't fix, I can't restore that. There's nothing that shocks God. There's nothing so shocking or so difficult that he cannot restore the marriage and bring glory to his name in the process. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're to bring glory to God no matter what we do, either whether we eat, drink, or sleep, or in our marriage. We are to bring glory to God. A lot of people think that, all, that, that of all the sins that, that one can commit, oh, adultery is the big one. That adultery automatically destroys the marriage and there's no future. Wrong. It's the, uh, the, the only thing that, that, that destroys marriage is to marry somebody else. That breaks the marriage bond. Biblically, biblically speaking, adultery doesn't have to be more destructive to your marriage than any other sin. And I've seen over the years many of these situations restored and even made the marriages better. God is able to heal if people are willing to apply the word of God to their situation. And that's the key. When you're ready to forgive and you're ready to let go of negative attitudes, God is more than ready and he's more than willing to heal and to renew your love for each other. And he's been waiting for that all the time. That's, that's what he's waiting for. He says, bring it to me, not to divorce court. Now, as we go on here, notice the change in the Shulamite's heart, in Solomon's wife's heart. Once she recognized she was wrong, hey, it changed everything. One moment she was angry with Solomon for waking her up and she rejected him. Now, just a little bit later, she's afraid that she might lose her husband and was passionate in her desire for him. Look at verses 8 and 9 now. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem. She's speaking now to her servants. So that's with the daughters of Jerusalem. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. And then the daughters of Jerusalem, these servants of hers, they answer her back. Well, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than other beloved that you so charge us? So she says to them, hey, make this promise. She's saying this to her servants, make this promise. If you find my lover, tell him I am weak with love. And they respond to her, well, why is your lover better than anybody else? Why is your lover better than the others? What makes your lover so special that we must promise this? And then she started to think about all the wonderful things about her husband. 
Those things that, that set him apart from other men and made him so special to her. And she thought about why she loved him and why she should give herself to him so generously instead of withholding from him in selfishness. And then in verses 10 through 16, notice she's going to list all of his qualities. Look at verses 10 through 16 now. She says, my beloved is white and ruddy. He's chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with burl. His body is carved ivory, uh, his body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His, his countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars his mouth is most sweet yes he is altogether lovely this is my beloved and this is my friend O daughters of jerusalem so she says here i'm going to go down what she said my beloved is white she's not talking about the color of his skin my beloved is white his motives are pure his behavior towards her is pure she says, and he's ruddy. The word ruddy means red. That means he could have been, could have been had a bronze complexion, uh, the person of somebody who's outside all the time, who's outdoors all the time. She says, he's chief among 10,000. That means he's very handsome. It says, his locks are wavy and black as a raven. There's no gray hair. That's cold, man. No, hey, there's no, no gray hair. She says, there's no gray, no sign of weakness of age. It says his eyes are like doves. That means soft and, and, and gentle towards her. She says, by the rivers of waters washed with milk, eyes that are not reddened by alcohol or evil living. They're fitly set. That is, his eyes were for her and her alone. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are, are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. That was, he was compassionate toward her. He expressed his love in a sweet and tender way toward her. She says, his hands are rods of gold set with burl. His body is carved. He's chiseled. You know, he's got guns. His his body is carved, ivory inlaid with sapphires, strong in authority and strong spiritually. A manly man to his wife, but never a bully. He led by example, not by demand. She goes on to say, his legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. That is, he was physically strong, able to stand strong in battles. She says, his countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. That is, he stood tall because he knew who he he was in God's eyes. And she said, his mouth is most sweet. That is, his words were kind. His mouth was a source of sweetness towards her. He said kind things to her. She finished by saying here at the end, notice, yes, he is altogether lovely. In other words, he's everything I want in a husband. So notice how God has totally changed her heart. In closing, she is a good example of what we've been talking about. What God does in transforming a person's attitude in mind. Remember at the beginning, she goes, oh man, I just got in bed. I, just, I got my robe on. I don't want to get up. I just washed my feet. I'm going to get them dirty. Listen to her here in 10 through 16. She's just talking about all the good points. A lot of times we, we, we seem to pick out the bad points and we focus on that rather than looking at, hey, why I love in this and married this person. So God does a transforming uh, uh, work in, in her attitude and in her mind, and it resulted in a change of behavior. 
First, she starts to see things in a new light. She starts to see the good that has escaped her. She sees her husband as God sees him. And when that happens, man, compassion is renewed in her heart. And that gives her a new desire for renewed intimacy. And she says, man, this is my beloved and this is my friend. Father, we thank you so much for your awesome word, Lord. What a great lesson here, Father, in, in, in attitude, Father, and change of heart. Father, from changing our view from the negative to the positive, Lord. Remembering the wonderful things in our spouse. The reason why we married this person, Lord. And Father, we just pray that you would help us, God, to have the right view of things, God. To look at things through your eyes, Lord. And, and not through our feelings and our emotions, Lord but through truth and honesty, God. Father, we thank you for your word, for it is truly a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, God. It shows us the way. It points us in the right direction, Lord. So, Father, help us. Help us, Lord. Guide us and lead us, God, with your strong hand, Lord. And we ask that your spirit would continue to lead and to guide us into all truth, God, and in the paths and on the paths in which you want us to go, Lord. So we thank you, Father. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen.